It's Wednesday, October the 21st, and welcome to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical implications in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, if you're watching Goodfellows for the first time, and let's see, I think this is month seven that we've been doing this, maybe soon to be month eight, but this is a conversation for the better part of the next hour featuring three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, but three fellows offering their uh, thoughts on what may happen in these uncertain times. Let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hey, John, how are you? Good, thanks. Good to see you, my friend. Joining us from yet another undisclosed location is the renowned historian and author, Neil Ferguson. Neil is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. It's good to be uh, with you, Bill. Yes, the Fergusons move from one safe house to another, constantly harried by, by foes. It's, uh, it's never boring. No, and I think we get off the call. John Cochran will have some wall decoration suggestions for you. Maybe some, some Mrs. Cochran's artwork for you. That would, dis- that would reveal the location. Okay, and we won't go there. Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow. He's also the author of the New York Times bestselling Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. H.R., how are you today? Good, Bill. Good. I hope you're well. Great to see everybody. I missed everybody. I know. We had a week off. We missed you guys, too. So, gentlemen, today let's talk about big tech. I say that decidedly big tech because in Washington, when something gets a prefix on it with the word big, it means it is bad. Big tech, big tobacco, big oil, big pharma. These are not good things, but big tech, which means Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google have now fallen into this category. And I think it's a fascinating topic because it involves what? It involves the market, it involves commerce, it involves politics. And few people better embody the intersection of this than Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Scott, let's see the senator in action. Can you roll the clip, please? I think big tech poses the single largest threat to free speech and democracy in America. Their power keeps growing and growing and growing. I'm very glad to see the Department of Justice moving this week to bring an antitrust lawsuit against Google. Google is worth over a trillion dollars. They've got $120 billion just sitting around in cash. And they use and abuse their monopoly position, number one, to enrich themselves at everyone else's expense, but number two, when it comes to politics, to silence American citizens and now to censor the media, Okay, Neil Ferguson, I want you to kick this off, and I want to read you a Neil Ferguson quote from a column you just wrote. Quote, is it stupidity or venality that has convinced America's legislators that antitrust is the answer to the problem of big tech? A bit of both, I suspect. Either way, it's the wrong answer. What, my friend, is the right answer then? Well, the right answer, as I've been arguing for four years now, is to look again at the regulatory legislative uh, framework that was established in the mid-1990s when companies uh, like Google and and Facebook didn't exist and the internet still was at a relatively early stage. Uh, The most important uh, uh, part of the legislative framework is section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which updated uh, legislation that dated back to the 1930s. The important thing about Section 230 is that it was designed uh, to kind of strike a balance. And it made sense at the time. What nobody wanted uh, was a situation in which uh, internet companies uh, 
were sued uh, for uh, content that appeared on their, their platforms. Uh, so they created Section 230, essentially saying, um, you aren't going to be liable for the content on your, your platform, but uh, you should try and moderate it so that it's not a torrent of filth. Now, this actually made a lot of sense in the 1990s when uh, companies that were based on the World Wide Web were still, as I said, at a very early stage of development. But the problem is that Section 230 has become a kind of catch-22 for the biggest corporations in the world, mm -hmm. as uh, companies like Facebook and Google now are, in which essentially uh, they can say, if you say to them, the content uh, on your uh, platform uh, did me harm, well, they say, oh, but we're just a, a technology company, we're just a platform, nothing to do with us. But if they then use their extraordinary dominance of, of the modern media to take your content down, and you say, hey, this is censorship, you know, I don't want to quote Ted Cruz right back at him. If you, if you say, I'm a conservative, I've been discriminated against uh, by Google search, or I've been taken down by Twitter or Facebook, or if you're the New York Post and you say, we had a hot scoop on Hunter Biden and you just basically killed it, mm -hmm. then the, uh, the technology companies can say, oh, but, but we, we don't have a First Amendment uh, that applies to us because we're just private companies. And I think that's the problem that we now have, that, that Section 230 has become a catch-22 for anybody who wants to try and take legal action against these companies. Uh, you actually can't win. Uh, and that, in my view, is the real key issue here. Antitrust, I'll let John uh, give you his thoughts on this uh, because as an economist, he's better qualified, especially as a Chicago economist, better qualified to do that. I think antitrust is a huge blind alley, uh, A, because there are kind of natural networks on the internet, like Google search, that you just aren't going to be able to, to, to break up. And, and B, because no antitrust action based on the notion that anti-competitive practices are, are taking place will address this problem, that the network platforms have become the public sphere. They've become enormously powerful as a result, and yet we continue to regulate them as if they were startups uh, back in their garages in the 1990s. Right, John? Well, I, I'll, I'll put on the agenda, we'll talk about antitrust and, and exactly why applying antitrust to tech companies is a silly idea. Um, and uh, we'll also put on the background our, our weekly, uh, my weekly debate with Neil over free speech versus paternalism on the internet. Um, but I, I wanna, I think the larger picture uh, I wanna point here is this is a, there's a failure in America and how we deal with things. There's a problem with tech companies and there's a free, I, well, it's, what Ted Cruz was complaining about was free speech, about control of the public square. He wasn't complaining about Standard Oil raising gasoline prices and working up the demand curve. It's nothing to do with antitrust. So um, in a normal functioning country, when you have a completely new technology business model thing going on and you have problems with it, you get together, you figure out what those problems are, you, you form a well thought out piece of legislation, new legislation that says, here's what we're gonna do. But I mean, for better or worse, that's what they did with Standard Oil. Um, you know, many of us think it was kind of a mistake, but there was this perceived problem. There's the trusts, they're big, we get together, we pass the, the, the uh, antitrust legislation, we do something about it in legislation. 
we, we don't do that anymore. Instead, um, we, we're trying to shoehorn this into century old uh, antitrust legislation that has nothing to do with the problem at hand. Even section 230, uh, you know, saying, okay, well, we'll regulate you the way we regulate newspapers, a bunch of law uh, that was developed in a, what the 1890s, I don't know when it was developed, but that again, has nothing to do with the problems at hand. Uh, we, we, we jump to applying legal remedies uh, with laws that are very poorly designed, that are clearly political. You know, what this is, is this is a political, we're gonna hound you to death and make you spend a billion of your trillion dollars on lawyers along the way. Um, it, it's not a well thought out uh, response to the problem. So I, I guess my first thought that I wanna put in is it's just too bad that we're not a functioning society that sits down, figures out what the problem is with the tech companies and comes up with appropriate legislative remedy. Instead, we all run to the courts uh, and try to, to use the criminal uh, justice system to, to solve this problem, which is, is not the right answer, either antitrust or make them be newspapers again. So Neil wants to go after the Federal Communications Decency Act because that's where you find Section 230. John, are you telling us you want to go after the Sherman Antitrust Act? Oh, the Sherman Antitrust Act, well, first of all, it, it's got all sorts of problems on its own. But second, it has just nothing to do okay. with what's going on with the tech companies uh, now. So, <laughs> uh, you know, some basic principles. Antitrust is supposed to be about, it is not about uh, small competitors being unhappy. It's about damage to consumers. <clears throat> so if you get big and the way you get big is by giving stuff away for free to consumers, that's not an antitrust problem. So that's sort of principle one of antitrust that's being violated here. Um, principle, you know, when you look at the case, we're, re we're redoing the Microsoft case, their bundling of, uh, of Internet Explorer with their, with their operating system. This is the triumph of nudge. Um, <laughs> if you buy a phone, the, the, the case is that if you buy a phone, it's pre-installed that the search goes to Google and it takes you about 15 seconds to choose a DuckDuckGo if you prefer to do that. Right. Um, so the stuff is being given away for free. That is not possibly a damage to consumers here. The damage to consumers is a question of free speech in the public space and so forth. And I, agree, I agree entirely with, with Neil. And I hope that's you know where we should go once we get rid of the idea that this is easily put into an existing legal category and we can just go sue people to stop it. Uh, then we need to we need to think about how you have a functioning public square. Uh, with with adequate free speech, yes. Now, HR, you can break up Ma Bell and create a bunch of what were called RBOCs, regional bell operating companies, or baby bells as we came to know them. And life goes on. We get used to our new telecom situation. But if you break up Amazon, um, I'm not going to be overly dramatic, but I think there is probably going to be hell to pay with the American consumer. Why? I use Amazon. Maybe the three of you also use Amazon. It is fast. It is reliable. It is affordable. It's a system that works. So if I look at politicians tinkering with Amazon and breaking up uh, Amazon as part of Elizabeth Warren's platform, which you have from president, I thought, my first thought is, why are you going to bust up something that works quite well for me? So HR, how are politicians going to dance around something that might be politically very unpopular to do? Well, they're going to have a hard time doing it. And I think the key would be to, to focus on, on really what, what is the, the, the issue with Amazon? Is it barriers to entry to the market? Is it using the tremendous platform that they now control to advantage their products over others who otherwise would be more competitive and would provide consumers with, with a better product potentially. 
these are some of the legitimate issues that have been brought to light about, about Amazon. Uh, but I don't think that we should hold a company's tremendous success against them if they are innovative. I mean, I think if you look at what Jeff Bezos started with and what he's built, it is pretty extraordinary and how they've been able to move into adjacent markets. Now in entertainment, for example, and now in in, uh, in cloud capacity, which has been extremely useful to all of us uh, during the pandemic, as well as as the, as the delivery service uh, for goods and, and, and really staples for survival uh, in connection with uh, the Whole Foods acquisition and the ability to distribute groceries and so forth as well. So you know, I, I just think that to go to John's point, but let's focus on what the issues are and, and address those issues through legislation that hopefully thinks through uh, the second and third order effects. Uh, you know, the other issue we haven't talked about yet, uh, though, and, and Neil's written considerably about this as well, is not just the, the fact that we don't want you know, the tech companies to be the arbiters of free speech in our country, but it's really uh, the degree to which these companies use our data, have made us the commodity, uh, and, and the effect that that has on, on our privacy, but then also the degree to which these algorithms on which social media companies base their products uh, are, are, are exploiting us in, in a way that drives us apart from one another and is creating a lot of the social problems and I think divisions in our society that we see today. But, but these are all issues that have to be understood more fully and, and then, and then, uh, and then the, the appropriate actions taken. I, I, for one, for example, uh, you know, torn, you know, between the idea of anonymity, right? We, we, I don't think that you should be an anonymous user on, you know, on social media because that makes it easy, right, for those who are hate mongers and sources of disinformation. But of course, in authoritarian company, countries, uh, if, if you're not anonymous, that is your criticism of a government, your, your, your uh, expression of a view that maybe you ought to have a say in how you're governed, uh, th then makes you a, a target. So, there are no easy answers to, to any of this. Uh, I think that you know that, that another you know, potential answer is is higher degree of transparency, publishing the algorithms that companies use right, to, uh, to entice you with more extreme information, uh, or, or or by you're trying to get you to, to open your wallet further uh, for for the next thing that that they know you need because they're they're in your mind and are patrolling your thoughts. As well as well, I, I do think it's important to, to emphasize the separation here between the commercial issues and the free speech issues. And, and on the commercial issues, <clears throat> bigness does not mean monopoly. Um, there is, as what HR alluded to, there's a lot of network externality. It's hard to break these companies up and have them continue to work. Right. There's a sense in which the network uh, works well. I would also, the idea that they are monopolies commercially, I think is vastly overstated. Uh, if you were Rip Van Winkle and you just woke up, uh, you learned that uh, Netscape is going to, Nets, Yahoo and Netscape and AOL have it all sewn up because they own the internet portal. Aha, how long that lasted. I look at these companies and they're actually pretty awful at what they do. And they're ripe for, ripe for disruption. Go to Amazon and try to buy something. Uh, you know, I, I tried to do this the other day. You get hundreds of different things. It's hard to pick what's good and what's bad. User interface is awful. Google tries to sell me stuff with all this data about me. Google's AI is terrible at knowing what, what I want. It, it keeps trying to sell me the same stuff that I have absolutely no interest in whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> Facebook, you, you look at that interface, it's straight 2005. I mean, they're all, you know, if you look at, at what they do, they're all ripe for disruption. Um, so the idea that they are either just because they're the ones big now, that they're not ripe for disruption. Or and I think Neil is about to bring up that the Chinese version 
<laughs> are doing pretty well uh, in, in other parts of the world. Uh, so neither bigness is not necessarily bad. Uh, being mean to small inefficient competitors is not necessarily bad. The, the scholarship on, on, uh, on uh, uh, antitrust, not so obvious standard oil was bad. It's competitors, the small, not very efficient producers hated it, but standard oil kept lowering the price of gasoline. <laughs> Uh, and it was actually quite efficient for a peep, for consumers in the end. That's the, the new antitrust is really focused much more on damage to consumers, not the rights of competitors. Hey, hey Bill. Hey, Bill. I want to hear uh, Neil's thoughts on on this uh, uh, as well. Neil, if I could just give you one more thing to address, if you don't if you don't mind. You know, we we are we are, we are not as competitive as we should be in critical areas uh, uh, that that are that are essential to our ability to compete in the emerging data economy. We've seen this with 5G infrastructure, fifth generation communications infrastructure, for example, where a com com company like Huawei has a great amount of, of capital to invest uh, in, in research and development and in, in placing that infrastructure. Our telecoms are broke. So I, I think one of the advantages of our big tech companies is they do have capital to maintain our competitive advantages uh, and, and, and invest in key emerging sectors. You've written a lot about fintech as well. I wondered if you might explore, you know, the implications for for our ability to compete in these new these new arenas of economic competition going forward. Well, HR, you kind of raise a, a broad national security question about how far big tech uh, is is an asset uh, in the competition, not only with with China but other international players, uh, Russia, uh, smaller economically, but in some ways a more effective antagonist when it comes to information warfare. And I, I'd say a, a couple of things about this. When you look at the, the scale of, of, say, Google, it, it seems like uh, the, the leading uh, company in the world when it comes to, to quantum computing, and they, they seem most likely to achieve the quantum supremacy. Uh, I think if, if one uh, asks the question, where could the United States pull ahead decisively uh, relative to China, it's, it's, it's probably there. Uh, but when you look at financial technology, actually, the US has, has lagged behind uh, in electronic payments. And, and PayPal is, although it was an early mover in this field, is, is far behind Alipay and its 10 cent equivalent WeChat pay. And I think, as we've discussed in previous shows, there's a, there's a race on to build the new financial architecture. Uh, and China's winning uh, in many ways. When a company in the United States came up with uh, the idea of uh, a payments platform made in America, it was Facebook and the idea was Libra. But by that time, Facebook had done itself so much reputational damage in the wake of the 2016 election that it was really hard to get Libra off the ground. And it's had to be radically downscaled in its ambition just to keep... Uh, to keep alive. Why has all this happened? I think it's because we did not conduct a serious post-mortem into what happened in 2016. Uh, a whole series of, I think, half-baked inferences were drawn uh, from the events of 2016. Uh, uh, one of which was that the Russians had played a decisive role uh, in the 2016 election, which I think was false, uh, because uh, in reality, Russian content, although it was widely disseminated uh, on platforms like Facebook and Twitter was 
about maybe 1% of all the political content on the American internet in 2016. Now, the right conclusion to draw from the election of 2016 was that Facebook had become a super weapon in political advertising, unlike anything that had previously existed. And one campaign knew how to use it, and that was Donald Trump's campaign, and the other did not, and that was Hillary Clinton's campaign. And the social network platforms were really crucial to Trump's victory four years ago. I think the whole debate about Russia confused the issue and distracted attention from this very fundamental change of the public sphere that had been brought about by Silicon Valley. To a very large extent, Americans get their news filtered by companies like Facebook or Google. A really large proportion of people get news from social media, about two thirds. Uh, in, in some cases, especially amongst younger people, it's actually the only source of news that they rely on. And that means that our whole ecosystem of information, political information, the news, has been completely changed. When I read about this year's election, the thing that most annoys me is how many commentators continue to talk about it as if it's politics as usual, politics that will be decided by television debates, politics uh, that will be decided by campaign uh, rallies and stump speeches. And in reality, the political landscape was fundamentally altered four years ago uh, and altered by the extraordinary growth and importance of, in particular, Facebook and Google. We haven't addressed that. And to go back to where we, we began, as long as we can continue to regulate those companies on the basis of, of 1990s legislation that's now completely out of date, they are going to have overwhelming power and no accountability. John, the courts are the best place to hold these companies to account. Uh, would you prefer a regulator to do this for us? Because that's the third option. We haven't talked to... So, a, so I do what? Uh, I have an option for you. Is antitrust. And option C is regulation. And, and we haven't talked about that. And I think we should. Well, reg uh, speech regulation is a very dangerous place to go. I, I wanna, first, I want to take a little issue with your um, fintech comment. Uh, I think the reason the U.S. has not led on fintech is because of regulatory barriers. And the U.S. financial system is in the hands of big banks and credit card companies who are very happy with the 2 to 4% they get off of every transaction and have been able to stifle what goes in. Libra was ill-conceived in many ways from the start, but there's all sorts of, of payments tech that just stops uh, the minute it gets to Washington, which is sad. Um, we've been debating this question of, of junk on the internet for a long time and the problem of who's going to stop it. And uh, we're uncomfortable. We certainly don't want government censors, but I think we've discovered in the last couple of weeks that private censors is even worse uh, and that raising the ability to sue is, is bad. So I have a proposal for you, uh, the free speech proposal. <clears throat> Why is not the right ecosystem here that the um, anything can go on the internet, but it is not the job of the internet of the company of Facebook, Twitter, whatever, to determine Neil Ferguson has said something that contravenes WHO guidelines and so must be silenced. This has happened to our colleague Scott Atlas several times in the last several weeks. And then the WHO changes his mind, but uh, too bad. <laughs> he was right all along. Uh, silencing at the source by either government or by the company seems like the wrong answer. The right answer seems to be caveat emptor. Uh, why can I not sign up for the filters I want? Now, if, if uh, Twitter and Facebook are providing a good service of fact checking and, uh, <clears throat> uh, and making sure content is good, then I should uh, click, yes, I want the tw Twitter uh, curated 
or I could check, I don't want Twitter curated. In fact, it seems to me that the natural ecosystem here is that Twitter and Facebook are in fact just completely open platforms and that third parties should be able to sell uh, what newspapers used to sell. Uh, here is your curated Twitter stream, curated courtesy of Neil Ferguson Incorporated, who does a good job of fact checking or finding the stuff you want. Um, that seems like the right answer as opposed to any effort to uh, stifle things at the source for being, un, um, for being whatever. John, with all due respect, I think this is a bit, a bit naive because what, what really these companies do, as Mark Zuckerberg had to explain to a rather slow uh, senator during some congressional hearings, is they, they sell ads, or to be precise, they, they basically sell uh, the ability to target ads on the basis of the data that they've accumulated uh, from their users. And the business model requires, above all else, user engagement. That, that means that what is appearing on a news feed or on your Twitter stream is already carefully designed by an algorithm to engage you. That's the paramount objective of, and I like uh, that. of these companies to keep your eyeball but, but Neil, you're being, and to keep you but John, you're, you're me, being ridiculously paternalistic it, it, here about the, 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 the little peasants. I, I'm not, on the contrary. Them. Remember, John, my fundamental proposal is that you either scrap or modify 230 and create a First Amendment uh, obligation on, on the internet so that there is meaningful free speech. We have a body of law that determines what you can and cannot say in the public square of the United States. You cannot uh, go on, on TV or uh, write in a magazine threatening somebody with death, for example. Yes. Uh, but what we don't have is the application of that kind of uh, body of law to the internet company, because they say, whenever you say to them, uh, you're acting like a publisher, they say, no, no, we're a technology platform. And that, that's a complete inconsistency. As I said, it's like catch 22. You know, whenever you say you're behaving like a censor, they say, oh, we're entitled to do that under Section 230. Uh, when you say you're allowing terrible things to appear on the platform, they say, oh, we're allowed to do that too under Section 230. And that, that can't be the way to regulate right. uh, the most powerful companies in America, which have become, as the Supreme Court recently pointed out, the public square of this country and indeed of most of the world. So I believe in free speech, I think, more passionately uh, than, than any man or, or woman. But the problem we have is that we don't really have free speech on the internet at the moment. What we have is a hodgepodge of community standards, uh, content moderation rules that aren't transparent, and the tech companies yep. have improvised. They've improvised a, a sort of system of censorship in response to a bunch of pressures, pressures from European governments, like for example, the German government that basically is in favor of censorship, pressures from uh, radical groups, uh, often on the left, that want to, uh, uh, to, to classify more or less anything they disagree with as hate speech, and also pressures from within, from their own younger employees, the millennial and Generation Z employees, who buy into this campus cancel culture. So this is the worst of all possible worlds. There's no consistency to it. Let's get HR in on the conversation. HR, I've heard fixes from Neil, I've heard fixes from John. What do you have to offer for us today? Well, Neil mentioned Catch-22, so of course that evoked the image of Yossarian uh, censoring letters in, in Catch-22. Uh, but of course, Yossarian was neutral. He just would remove, for example, all the articles uh, out, of, out of a letter before it was uh, before it was mailed home. And so there's the issue of, are these companies neutral? Are they political, politically biased? Are they applying a, a standard that, that uh, Neil alluded to in the, in the beginning, a standard that 
would 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 uh, you know, be be relevant to preventing harm, uh, but but not uh, engage in, in political bias. I, I don't think we can trust them to be the arbiters arbiter, arbiter of free speech. And 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 um, and the other only other point that I'd make is that to, in addition to the conversation we've already had, it, is that this has to be an international effort. And you know, I'd welcome thoughts uh, from John and from Neil on 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 what we might do. Uh, to, to pursue standards that that are are common across our free and open societies, because what we're seeing now with uh, with the European Union, uh, with India, for example, as, as well as a number of different standards associated with with, with privacy and freedom of speech uh, and and, uh, and protection of data and so forth that that are different, and then I think reduce our competitive advantages vis-a-vis closed authoritarian systems uh, like like China. Uh, the other, the other only addition I'd say to what we've already talked about is, is you know, we we do have, we are behind uh, for for reasons of regulation, as John mentioned, other impediments uh, to to transitions uh, in our, our financial sector that make sense that are good for consumers and Americans. We're also impeded by by China's blocking of our companies' access to their market, so they can gain an unfair advantage with the numbers of people that they have. Uh, and, and and implement uh, fintech, for example, solutions quite quite rapidly. But so I, I, I but but I would there's an international dimension of this competition that we just want to be aware of, so we don't disadvantage ourselves vis a vis China in particular. But but we have to, we have to get it right domestically first. But I think we're coming to agreement here, um, especially with Neil. Let, let me propose. <laughs> I think it sounds like we're both saying, and it all actually is a little bit sympathetic to some breakup. Um, there needs to be one function, which is the public square, and which needs to, we, we pretty much have that right <laughs> in the US of what kind of speech is allowable in the public square. And, and uh, you know, you can say, say what you want, especially if it's political speech, except, um, you know, you don't say fire in a crowded theater or advocate violence and, and so forth. So that's one function that, that, that these platforms should be allowing. The second function is how do you take the cacophony of the public square and turn that into content that people want to see. That's what newspapers used to do. And maybe newspapers were addictive to get you to click onto the, you know, watch the ads and click onto the next one. Uh, and that's a, that's a useful function that ought to be competitive uh, and, and uh, perhaps ought to be separated from the function of providing the public square. How are we doing, Neil? Closer to agreement? I don't think we're that far apart, actually, uh, on this topic, the, the three of us, because I, I think it's very obvious that something needs to be done and should have been done after 2016 to address the fact that what has become the public square uh, is not in, in, in any meaningful sense uh, a place in which in which ideas can, can compete uh, on a level playing field. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, problems about the political uh, preferences of the people who run the tech companies, as well as the people who work for them. I think there's no question uh, that there's been a tendency for conservative content to be discriminated against much more than left wing content. Uh, and this this is going to persist until there are some new uh, rules that recognize that essentially these companies have become so much the dominant parts of the public square, that they, they serve a public purpose and cannot therefore simply say, oh, what we allow to go up is up to us. We're private corporations. I do think there has to be a quasi First Amendment if you're as big as they have, have become uh, in order to make sure that there isn't discrimination against people who fall foul of, of woke 
uh, of woke norms. And I think that's doable. The puzzle to me is that it hasn't been done or rather that the attempt to revise or scrap 230, section 230 only came very late in the Trump administration, too late, I think, actually to, to be done. And it's very striking to me that the Democrats have jumped on board the antitrust uh, bandwagon with, uh, with such enthusiasm. My sense is that if big tech uh, sees a, a victory for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in a couple of weeks, they will sigh with relief because they'll know that all the political energy is going to go into antitrust and the uh, issue of Section 230 is going to be forgotten and the issue of censorship will be forgotten because only conservatives really feel strongly about that. Uh, it's not as if people on the left feel that they're being discriminated against uh, on Twitter or for that matter by, by Google because they aren't. Antitrust, I agree with you, John, is, is going nowhere. I actually don't think today's judges will take seriously an antitrust action against uh, Google uh, or for that matter, Amazon. Facebook is the one where it might get somewhere because I think you could legitimately argue that Facebook shouldn't really have been able to take over uh, uh, WhatsApp uh, and Instagram and that that was actually uh, a questionable uh, extension of Facebook's power. Uh, but otherwise, I think antitrust is going nowhere yeah. uh, and will achieve even less, I think, than the action against Microsoft did so, back many years uh, ago. The action against Microsoft did, did uh, cause a lot of pain for Microsoft for a long time. The Europeans are much more aggressive about uh, following up on antitrust. I view the antitrust action, uh, which actually came largely from the left, much more, much more darkly. What this is, is uh, we're going to unleash the fairly unrestrained power of the justice system against you because we want you censoring things in our favor. And I think in fact, uh, perhaps the next administration is most likely to keep the antitrust kind of banging around in the corners to say, we're going to cause a lot of problems for you uh, unless you keep on doing exactly the kind of subtle uh, censorship of, of, um, of Republican, frankly, Republican views that you are doing. Uh, and that's actually quite, that's, that's part of the larger danger of the criminalization of politics. Um, that's, you know, look at the business roundtable and how quickly it signed on to shareholder capitalism. Well, they know how much damage the regulatory state can do to them unless they sign on quickly, send out the, send out the, the cloying letters from the CEO about how we're all onto your various political goals. Uh, so I think that's what the antitrust is about. And I, I think the next administration will keep rattling it around for exactly that purpose. You know, what's, what's, it's what's actually, Bill, Bill, I just think that, you know, it's, it's, it's actually more dangerous than we're even portraying it, right? So, so we're, we're concerned about tech companies becoming the arbiters of free speech, but what's happening is this issue is coming to the fore in an environment in which we don't have authoritative sources of information like we used to. I mean, maybe except for uh, the Hoover Institution and Goodfellows, but we don't, we don't, we, we can't go, we don't go as Americans to kind of any source that we share across the political spectrum. You know, as you know, the New York Times has been taken over by a particular orthodoxy, at least in, in, the, uh, in, in the editorial section of that, that newspaper. Uh, and, and if you lean one way politically, you watch one cable news station. If you lean the other way, you watch one of two other cable news stations. So it, it, is, it is the combination of the media, I think, business model to a certain extent that, that, is, that is leading us in this direction. But in general, the polarization and the loss of professionalism within, the, within journalism as well. 
And I, I want to disagree with that. I, I don't think there was an authoritative media where it's always tempting to look in the background. Newspapers were always violently political. Uh, yeah. You know, in the 1970s, there were three channels and not much chance to disagree with them when, when they turned against the Vietnam War. The, the, you know, a voice of, of disagreement on that was hard to hear. Well, let's celebrate the, some of the wide open internet and what we've seen. Just in the COVID case, uh, the ability, at least until recently, of people to violently disagree, bring up new facts that completely contravene all the statements by government officials has been has, has really helped on, on figuring out how to deal with this thing and, and bring new information to the attention. But back in the old days, they, they covered up all sorts of sins of presidents. <clears throat> they didn't let us know that presidents were sick. <laughs> they covered up all sorts of sins of, 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 uh, <clears throat> of governments. They would never have let views that disagreed with the official line uh, come through. The wide openness of the internet has been a great thing in many ways. Well, this, this might be a topic for another, for another show, but I think we could agree that standards, professional standards in journalism oh, yeah. uh, have taken a hit. Uh, certainly, I think in, in what is you know, kind of the, the reaction to Donald Trump, right? If you, if you hate Donald Trump, for example, enough, uh, you'll print anything that you think might be damaging to him. And I, I remember the days when, you know, when a, when a journalist wouldn't print uh, uh, you know, a, a story uh, that was based only on off-the-record sources unless they could get at least one person to go on the record, right. for example. That standard has kind of just fallen by the wayside. And then, of course, the growth of the pseudo-media and how easy it is now for false stories and for slander and whatever, uh, you know, false material to jump the gap essentially from pseudo media into the mainstream media. So I, I think it is, it, is a, it is an unhealthy ecosystem now. Uh, and, and I think Americans are subjected to this in a way that actually, that actually pulls us further apart from one another, weakens our social fabric and, and raises more doubts you know, about who we are as a people uh, and, and these days in, in our democratic principles, institutions and processes. And, and so I, I think that as we look at, at the big tech companies, right, and, and the effect on, on free speech, I think we just have to view it in that broader context of the information ecosystem yeah. and what's happened to journalism and, and media broadly. But, but one thing I would say is that we, we shouldn't imagine that, that there really was a golden era Right. Uh, of uh, the American media in which there wasn't polarization and no fake stories got published because that era never existed. If you go back to the 19th century, European visitors to the United States like Charles Dickens were shocked at the vituperativeness of the, and the partisan nature of, 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 the, uh, of the American press. I think what's distinctive about our time is something else. And, and that is the ability of the network platforms because of the technology they used to amplify uh, messages in ways that weren't possible before. I'm in favor of free speech, but not for bots. Uh, one of the problems that we have on the network platforms is that bots have free speech. This is what makes Twitter such a dangerous uh, platform. It is so easy to game that platform and create uh, trending stories using non-human accounts, often fake accounts. I think the other thing that's really striking is that far more than in the past, it is quite easy for foreign uh, actors uh, to, to play 
uh, in this particular sandpit. Uh, and this is an issue for UHR, which I'd love to get your thoughts on. I mean, it's obvious that four years ago, the Russians made a sustained effort uh, to meddle in the uh, election, not because they had a particular outcome in mind, they just wanted to sow uh, skepticism, doubt about the legitimacy of the of the election. And they are doubtless engaged in uh, something similar right now, though by now, no doubt they've updated their methods so they won't be so easily detected as they were four years ago. We've seen a lot uh, of online action by the Chinese government. I logged on to Twitter the other day and was sort of greeted with a cascade of inflammatory tweets from the Chinese foreign ministry, which has become extremely active on US uh, social media. My sense is that the ability of foreign powers to hack into our national conversation has no real precedent. It is the kind of thing that the KGB could only fantasize about. And I don't think we've done anything like enough to address this, this vulnerability in our system. Yeah, we, we, ha we haven't done enough for sure. We have done quite a bit. And, and so uh, as we looked very carefully at the 2016 elections, our conclusion, my conclusion certainly was that what Russia really wanted to do was decrease our confidence in who we are as a people. And as I mentioned, really create a crisis of confidence in our democratic processes and, 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 uh, and, and institutions. Uh, I, it's, it's not well known that Russia had a whole campaign ready to go uh, for Hillary Clinton's victory. And that's exactly what the Russians anticipated was that Hillary Clinton would win the election. And the narrative that they wanted to use was, hey, Trump would have won, except the election was rigged, right? What they want us to think is our elections are rigged. So what we did is we ran a, the interagency process to figure out, okay, what do we do to protect ourselves against this threat in, in the future is we secured our elections. We worked very hard, you know, in that, in that first year to form new organizations, the Cyber Infrastructure Security Organization, uh, and convened the departments and agencies to work with the states. As everybody knows, we have a very decentralized system. In some ways, that's a security advantage to us if they meet the standards that, that all of them are working toward now and, and I think have accomplished quite a bit. I'm just securing just the process of the election. That's gone very well. The other aspect that has gone well, Neil, is, is that we recognize a good cyber defense requires a good offense. And we needed policy changes that would allow our cyber forces to be more active from an offensive perspective. And, and that made a huge difference between 2016 and 2018. As you already alluded to, though, this is a continuous interaction with a very determined adversary. And so as soon as you can recognize kind of the footprint of these cyber actors uh, and, and, and you're able to take them down quite easily because a lot of the, you know, the, the identities they were using were quite obvious, right? And, and the fakes were quite obvious. They're getting much better. They're offshoring more of it. They're doing it from third countries and so forth. So it, we, it's going to be a continuous competition, no doubt about it. But I think the greatest, the greatest defense is an educated populace, you know, because when you go on, when you go on to Twitter and you see this, you know, you see the, this trap, it's quite, it's so obvious that these are agents of disinformation, right? Uh, and, and who are sowing dissent in our country and trying to shake our confidence. So I think an educated populace, there are some companies that have come up with, uh, I think, good methods along the lines that John uh, recommended, which is how about just presenting authoritative content or content that, that you want to consume on apps that are separate. Uh, from, from the, these apps that are so problematic. There's a company here in Palo Alto called Soap AI, a startup, uh, that, that curates materials on certain issues. So if you're interested in, you know, in the, in the Biden emails or whatever, you can click on that and then you can get a number of stories across the political spectrum 
you know, of course, somebody's doing this, but somebody's doing this who's well-intentioned, who wants to, to screen out, you know, some of the disinformation, but still give you, you know, access to a wide, uh, a, a wide range of sources, including the New York Post, for example. So, so I, I think, uh, I think there are solutions to this. We have to work continuously on it, though. So let me, I'm, I'm still the free speech skeptic, but I think you've got a, a hint of the right answer. I mean, the, the right answer to bad news is the ability to respond to it. And there's there's an optimal amount of bad stuff on the internet. If everything is curated, uh, if everything is, is perfectly right, then there's no demand for people to look for checking. Uh, so the ability to respond and people's wish to see uh, responses is, is the right answer. There's, I also, this idea of foreigners, uh, our public square should be open to foreign news. I think we need to distinguish, you know, Neil brought up the, well, what was it? It was the, the tweet of the Chinese, um, uh, which the Ch Chinese, it was Chinese government official tweets, right? So this isn't a bot. We know exactly who it is. And they're saying, I want to hear from them. <clears throat> um, I, I may disagree with it. I'd like to hear somebody's response to it. But I think the Chinese government has the right to publish stuff and let us listen to it and decide what it is. If the Chinese government uh, is involved in uh, sowing disinformation through fake accounts... That no, no, that, that, this is where I want to go. So you put together the government and you put together the official government and the fake accounts all in one. The fake accounts, this is the one where I, I have trouble with. Um, I, yeah, no rights for bots. Uh, rights for people, but as HR brought on brilliantly early on here, the crucial problem is, you know, your ideal might be, well, anybody can speak on the internet, but we have to verify who you are and that you're speaking on your own account. But of course, that invites political retribution. So uh, you have to have the right to speak in some sense anonymously. Uh, so how do we get rid of the bots? How do we verify that you are an actual person uh, without uh, destroying your ability to speak in ways that are politically unpopular and that could uh, and to protect yourself from retribution for what you say. Well, as HR will confirm, there are lots of ways in which companies can identify bots uh, if they uh, happen to be doing a lot of tweeting uh, during Russian business hours. That's usually a a clue where it was in 2016. Um, and I think one of the most recent studies that I've been very struck by, which looked at uh, disinformation around the pandemic, uh, something we've we've actually not talked about, but it's hugely important. Uh, there, there was enough reason to be suspicious of many of these accounts. Uh, there was a good uh, study done uh, that, that essentially concluded a lot of the arguments that were online for early reopening were in fact of foreign origin and were either partly or wholly being broadcast by bots. So this is the kind of thing that is, I think, really troubling, especially when you look at what's happening right now in the, the debate about a vaccine. Now, it is very clear, given our inability to get our act together with uh, integrated testing and tracing, that a vaccine is very important for bringing life in the United States and indeed in Europe back to any kind of normality. But what you have online at the moment is an extraordinarily well-organized network of anti-vax 
politics uh, extremists who have been making arguments against vaccination for many years, now directing their fire against the, the, the coming and very likely quite effective uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Now that's where you get into a really dangerous uh, territory. Shoot, sure, free speech, but free speech for the anti-vax movement is actually going to delegitimize a necessary step forward uh, in public health, especially if that is being seeded by the Chinese or Russian governments with the view to maximizing our economic difficulties. Well, it, it, and it would be if there were, as uh, HR pointed out earlier, a uh, competent, a political press <laughs> that was hewing to old standards who could say, no, this is not true. And if we didn't have domestic politicians, Kamala Harris and Andrew Cuomo saying you can't trust any vaccine that comes out of the Trump administration, which is not helping the cause, I agree with you. It is shocking to me how bad the AI is. Uh, I run a blog, and so I get to see the comments that come through all of Google's uh, supposedly spam filtering, and it's just shockingly bad how little Google, Google can't figure out that posting the exact same comment 15 times in 10 seconds might be spam, and I have to go do that manually. It can't figure out that Miss Sharon Sim from Singapore, who's been asking for money for the last five years on my blog, is a bot. Uh, you, you really think the, all this vaunted tech would be able to do a lot better job of figuring out who's a bot and what's spam and what isn't. But uh, my data points say they're terrible at it. So gentlemen, we're winding down here. We have a few less than 10 minutes to go. So let, let me ask you one closing question here. And that's, let's take this from big tech's perspective. Uh, we have an election in less than two weeks, as Neil referred to. They prefer one candidate, the other that candidate leads to the polls. So life is good. They may get a democratic Senate. Life is good. You're now being chased by the Justice Department. These companies have enormously deep pockets. They live to litigate. They can drag this out. Look at what happened in Europe with Google. So they can just play it out in the courts. If you're big tech right now, what do you really fear? Do you fear antitrust? Do you fear somebody in D.C. is going to take a sledgehammer to you? Do you fear competition in the marketplace? In other words, if things are going to change with these companies, is it going to be something driven externally by the government or is it going to be driven internally by the marketplace? I think you fear 1948. What you fear is a polling error larger than the one, much larger than the one we saw uh, four years ago, and a last minute swing of support uh, to the incumbent, which was, of course, what led uh, Harry Truman to victory against uh, the expectations of the, the press uh, uh, and media at that time. And that's a nightmare scenario for big tech. Uh, because, uh, you know, as your clip early on from Ted Cruz made clear, there's, there's really quite a lot of fire in Republican bellies now about these issues. Uh, it's, been, it's been kind of gradually building up in the last couple of years as the interventions have become more and more overtly political. Uh, but if the Republicans can pull off a surprise comeback against all the odds at this point uh, and, and do a 1948 so that the, uh, the newspapers all have to be uh, uh, hastily rejigged because the headline is not... Biden defeats Trump, it's Trump defeats Biden. That I think would be a big, big shock for Silicon Valley, even bigger than the shock they got four years ago. I'm not saying it's gonna happen. I'm just saying that if you look at this probabilistically, it is not a 0% probability that this can be changed, that this result can be, can be flipped in the last uh, remaining days of the, of the campaign. Okay, John HR. So 
there's a difference between what companies fear and what we should fear. I think the sad fact is the tech companies have made the same transition of many other companies in America. They started out small, innovative, and apolitical. They found out that they have to run to Washington, D.C. and get all their lobbyists in line and their massive amounts of money in line. They want political stability. <clears throat> like banks, they don't care like banks, like tax accountants, like, you know, they don't care which party wins so long as it's pretty clear ahead of time what party's going to win, where the power is going to be, who you got to take out to lunch, who you got to butter up, uh, and how you get regulatory favor, which leads to it's the natural progression is you become very big and you become very entrenched, not because of your natural monopoly, but because of your, your extremely large lobbying influence in Washington. And, and politicians are, are uh, you know, they're like the famous bank robber who said that's where the money is. Uh, you know, there's an astounding amount of money and, and power with these tech companies. So the natural place to go is, is the large regulated oligopoly <clears throat> where immense amounts of money feeds Washington. Washington doles out regulatory pressure in return for the money and the, the magic of controlling speech, which is what these companies have. Uh, both, uh, you know, the, so the companies want stability so they can offer, we'll censor speech and, and, and you let us keep making a lot of money. Uh, all of that leads to, you know, forget about antitrust. The, where government is going is to make less competition in tech in order to keep that coming. That's kind of the inevitable dynamic of all large uh, industries in the U.S. Okay. HR, three stars means you get the last word. Well, I just think all this leads to, to, to an unpredictable environment, right? These, these are businesses that need to invest long term and have to have a certain degree of predictability. Uh, and so I think that's probably frustrating for them. But I think what I would highlight again, just in closing, is the, is the international dimension of this problem set that, that tech companies are, are facing in connection with different, different uh, types of regulation, different standards associated uh, with privacy and free speech across the world. So, I mean, if I were them, I would try to foster uh, international cooperation to come up with standards that are applicable uh, across the free world, uh, because otherwise they're going to be subjected to coercion by authoritative regimes that will either not give them access to those particular markets or try to use them as, a, as an arm of their own repression. Uh, and then in the free world, uh, they're going to have a hard time meeting the various different standards and, and hurdles for both privacy and, uh, and, and for free speech. Okay, very good. Let's leave it there. Um, to the viewers, I'd recommend you track down Neil Ferguson's Twitter account and read his columns on technology. Uh, take advantage of COVID, if you will, and go track down NetWorld and binge watch that. You'll understand a lot more about technology uh, through Neil's very wise eyes. Uh, so, gentlemen, good conversation. I think I don't think we did anything that's going to get us yanked off of YouTube. What do you think? I think we're safe for now, or not? Obviously, <laughs> Skype's getting pulled down. Okay, well, with all the Catch-22 references, that, that's a good book to reread if you want a good laugh anyway. <laughs> Very good. Well, guys, thanks for a great conversation. Look forward to seeing you next week. Um, on the behalf of my Hoover colleagues, the Goodfellows, John Cochran, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe and stay healthy. And we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.